Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. close to where our guest works, spends a lot of his time um, in the, well, we won't give it away. We try to say undisclosed location because we don't want to be deluged with fans <laughs> who like want to come here and storm yeah. the place. There's lines outside in case you hadn't noticed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah thousands of people. Anyway, here with uh, my co-host on my immediate left, the great Jamal Murphy. Murph! Great to be here. It's been a minute. We've been on a little hiatus. Yeah, how long? Good to be back a few weeks, three weeks. Really? Yeah. You know, uh, summer turned into fall or fall turned into winter, something like that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, well, we get angry uh, emails from people saying, where have you guys been? I know. So, well, we've been, you know, like like Rasan Roland Kirk said, you know, he told some people, well, you guys said, well, you really didn't go anywhere. We just went around. But sometimes you got to go somewhere. So people going to say, oh, that's that local group. So sometimes <laughs> you got to, like, act like, yeah, we've been to so-and-so, you know. We've been all around the world. All around the world, so so people are hungry. And then, of course, right in front of me, great uh, Nabate Isles. Nabate. Hey, how's it going? All right? What's going on, man? All right, What's chilling. Happening? Everything's great. Blessed. Good. Yes, indeed. All right, like to hear it. Uh, our guest uh, is really is, is a very special guest. We've been trying to get together for, like, almost years, right? Since yeah, it's been first, a few years. A yeah. few years. I think so. I Nabate might be able to tell you, we met first outside of a Christian McBride concert at, right. um, at Dizzy's Club. I right. don't remember how many years ago it was. It was yeah, at least was... a few. Right. right. Uh, yeah. It's probably 16, 2016. Yeah, that sounds about wow. right. Wow, about yeah. three years ago. Yeah, it's been a minute. Right. We talked, and then we thought, man, you got to come on the podcast. I'm glad to be and, here. And then, anyway, our guest is a great Weston Sprott. Uh, Weston is the dean of the, well, to be, be, you know, we want to, because he's to be a trombonist. To be he, technical. Well, but he's a trombonist. Yeah. When I met you, when I met you, you were a trombonist for the Metropolitan Opera, Correct. which blew me away, period, to have a brother who was like a trombonist with the Metropolitan Opera. I said, wow, man, I just couldn't couldn't get over that. I should have. But then since then, you've actually got a new job, right? New job, dean of the preparatory division uh, at the Juilliard School. Wow. Yeah. Um, congratulations. Thanks. Hey, uh, welcome to the show, Weston. It's, it's really great to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell me, what, what happened? I mean... There's so much to talk, and also you're from Houston. Correct. So we got some rocket stuff yeah. to talk about. Maybe some Laker stuff too, but go ahead. Uh oh. Laker, Laker fan in the house, huh? Okay. We'll get there. No, we'll get there. <laughs> Texans or Rams? Are you going to say you going to hit us with the that too? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a basketball fan, but and I grew up as a Rockets fan. Okay. Th- at that time, it was Elijah and Drexler, that crew, and I, you know, I've since become kind of a LeBron follower. Uh oh. Yeah, I'm uh, one of those. Okay. All right. Well, well, we'll get it. There's worse people to follow. I guess. <laughs> no, I Come on, Bill. That. Come I on, Bill. I should say that. That's Stop cold. it, Bill. Right. Well, well you, you know, you haven't tried to get him on the show yet. <laughs> so, so, but to tell, so when we met, though, you or your trombonist. Remember, we met right out here Correct. Uh, at Lincoln Center. I think Nabate may have introduced us or mm-hmm. something like that after a Christian McBride concert. Uh, and we talked. But at the time, you were a trombonist. How did the Juilliard gig uh, happen? Well, I've been I've been playing trombone in the Metropolitan Opera for this is my fifteenth year. Just started. Wow. Uh, started wow. in uh, fall of two thousand five. So wow. this is season number fifteen. Wow! And hmm. 
I've managed over time to to try to leverage the platform that I have being in that orchestra to do other things that are more socially minded, trying to help classical music be more diverse and inclusive. So I've been involved in a lot of uh, thought leadership uh, projects regarding that. How can orchestras become more diverse, inclusive, equitable? How can classical music move in that direction? Uh, so that led to me using the position that I have to leverage that to be able to write articles and have people hear my voice partnering with a handful of friends of mine to to consult different organizations and foundations about initiatives that they should take. And I've also done a lot of work in education. So I just started this position as Dean of Preparatory Division at Juilliard, but I've been teaching in the two programs, the two main programs of Preparatory Division for over 10 years now. Oh, wow. So there's a program called the uh, Music Advancement Program, which which uh, expressly serves students who are from underrepresented communities. I taught there for eight years, every Saturday morning, eight mm. o'clock in the morning, most wow. of the time. Wow. And then the Juilliard Pre-College was another big program I've been teaching there since 2015. So when this position came open and they had a dean to, to be the person who's the leader of both of those programs, that really appealed to me because I thought one of the reasons why I teach and I've invested so much time and energy in teaching is because I love the opportunity to to help people, to help impact their lives and see how they grow. And the fact of the matter is when you're in a leadership position like the one that I'm fortunate enough to be in now, you have the opportunity to make that impact even broader. Mm. You know, So instead of working with maybe 10 to 15 students a week on a one-on-one -on -one basis, I get, to, I get to help be a part of shaping systems and processes that are affecting hundreds of kids mm. all the time. So that was, that was really appealing to me. It was... Um, it was kind of a personally mission-driven thing to decide to pursue this direction in my career. Do, do you know Alicia Graf-Mack? Uh, I had breakfast with her this morning. Because <laughs> she's director of dance at exactly. Juilliard. She's an absolutely fantastic, fantastic person. I mean, an amazing artist. And uh, I, I, read her, I read her piece in The Undefeated. It was fantastic. Yeah, we did uh, Dance the Beast. I narrated it. Uh, <laughs> no, but, but, she, you know, and, but she, her mission, same thing. Yeah. Uh, because I think you both recognize that there needs to be a whole bunch more diversity Absolutely. in your respective um, your respective areas. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that's been great. So, um, I know Nabate is over here chomping at the bit to ask something. Just wanted to follow up and everything. And like um, The importance of talking to our kids and being able to expose our kids to the music. Because, you know, not all of our children will be musicians, but at least they'll have that culture and they'll have opportunities right. to be able to, to, to learn about discipline about expression, things like that, that can help them be able to cultivate themselves, to be able to make it in any field. How do you express to our children what's your, what's your, um, your foundation that you set for them to be able to follow and be the next Western Sprout, not just musically or maybe as a, as a doctor, be at a high level as a doctor, lawyer, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, there are a lot of things that, that music teaches. You know that Nabate is a trumpet player. So there are different things that music teaches as an art form about how we can come together as people, how we can use the democratic process to, to create something that's wonderful. I mean, if, we, if you and me get together and we decide we're going to play a trumpet-trombone duet, mm -hmm. then at the end of the day, I might have an idea, you might have an idea, we might disagree, we might agree, whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we got to get on stage and present something for somebody else. It needs to be good. So that teaches us something. Yeah, <laughs> one, one, way, one way or the other, is, it's got to happen. Mm -hmm. you know? And then on an individual basis, what music teaches us as, as a discipline, you know, that's what it means to practice every day, what it means to pick up your instrument and try to play something and it sounds terrible and then you chip away at it day and day and day after over and over and over again mm -hmm. until you mold it into something excellent. So 
I think our kids are learning what it means to to go through a process and to build something, you know, from the ground up and then see that all the way to its logical conclusion, which that has a lot of parallels in life. That's that's an amazing thing. And then as far as teaching them to to have high expectations for themselves, I think that's a big thing. You know, we have a we have a lot of conversations going on in the world right now about equity, mm-hmm. which I think is obviously it's important, right? But I mean equity can be can be described in a lot of ways. So a lot of times we think about equity, especially with underserved, underrepresented communities, whatever, however you want to describe that. A lot of times we're talking about do we have access to the same to the same facilities, the same materials? Do our kids have good instruments? Do they have good computers? Is their classroom nice or whatever, all those things. And don't get me wrong, all those things are very, very important. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I communicated to to the parents at Music Advancement Program said the one thing we can't forget about is equity of expectation. Mm. I said, I want you to recognize that when your kids walk through these doors, the idea that the next Renee Fleming or Yo-Yo Ma or whoever is one of your kids creates no cognitive dissonance for me. I don't want to create any cognitive dissonance for you. Mm-hmm. So what that means is we're going to push your kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that that creates a different feeling amongst the student body when they walk in the door and they know I'm expected to be excellent and someone is standing there who believes that I'm capable of being excellent. And so when they push me, that's the reason why. So that's part of the, um, that's part of the mentality I'm hoping to bring to, to our programs there. Mm-hmm. Tell me, you know, I'm, I'm, I had to, in fact, we had this conversation with uh, uh, Steve Wilson, another musician. Uh, oh, yeah. Friend of, I'm just fascinated. Um, I think one of the kids, he did a, he did a um, broadcast with, uh, I run this fellowship called the Roden Fellows as part of, the undefeated and mm-hmm. all that stuff, and he was he did the the podcast with a fellow. So, you know, because we're talking about black music and the roots of black music, blah, blah. so one of the kids would say, "Yeah, but I just I just I just Googled uh, Apple Music and the top ten jazz musicians were all white or something like that," <laughs> you know. And the kid was just very honest. So we had to get to the whole thing of commercialization and power and control and all that. And I was wondering, um, you know, it seems to me, and, and you know. When I was okay, we're separated by a couple of generations, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, a lot of music uh, musicians got their start in public schools. Absolutely, you know, That's Chicago Capital. Yeah, public schools, instruments are there, and mm-hmm. you know, even equipment. If you're playing football, sports equipment, um, it seems that's that's dried up. And if that, if that's dried up, have opportunities for the masses of our kids. And I'm specifically talking about you know young black kids, mm-hmm. and not young black kids of upper middle class. Black, mm-hmm. I'm talking about just grassroots kids who. Right. Well, has, has have those opportunities dried up, and if so, how do you go about opening the opportunities as wide as they were when you began playing music? I had a unique, I shouldn't say unique, but I, I think my upbringing was a little bit different because I grew up in Texas, and Texas has really, really strong music education. I think that's largely linked to Texas being a football state, so. You know, every that whole Friday night lights thing that we hear about, that's that's legit. That that really happens. So every every high school in Texas has a stadium with five, ten, twelve thousand people watching the game every Friday, Saturday night, that type of thing. So what that also means is that every high school has a huge marching band program because some's gotta happen at halftime. Right. Which means that they have junior high schools that are feeding those programs and they're getting those kids instruments and uniforms and all those things. That's not the case across the country. And what I think is sad, is, especially living here in New York City, mm. is that this is arguably the most vibrant, 
arts, culture, uh, society in the world. But our public arts education is, is really struggling. You know, you would, someone from the outside looking in would imagine, oh, New York City with, right. with all the professional musicians walking around playing every at, block. Yeah, at, at the Met and David right. Geffen Hall and Coke Theater and all the Broadway shows and Birdland and the Vanguard, whatever. You would imagine, man, they must have a whole system below that where all these kids are getting great teaching. They're not. Mm. Um, there, there are a lot of programs in New York that are doing a lot of great work, but it's not a systemic thing for example, that has been promoted by the Department of Education, where you can say every public junior high and high school has music. So I wouldn't go so far as to say it has dried up, but I think it's something that is struggling, and I think there are a lot of people and a lot of organizations that are working individually to build their own programs. And it's, um, it's one of those things where a lot of good work is being done. There's positive things that are happening. I think it's disappointing that it's required for it to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, right. like we were talking about LeBron briefly earlier. I think it's amazing that LeBron has started this school. Right. Yeah. I think it's sad that he has to. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that's kind of where we're at in music. You can go and find a lot of individual programs doing a lot of great work, doing a lot of great things for kids. But I just wish it was part of the greater system to begin with. You, you know, just I just want before I forget, uh, I'll yield to Jamal. But um, you know, I had the same conversation with um, Richard Williams, mm-hmm. who you know, the, uh, Venus Arena's dad, just a few years ago, and he was saying, you know, he wanted to start a camp. He wanted to start this camp for black tennis players out and like buy a big track of land and start this academy for for young aspiring black tennis players. And he was saying. Why do we expect white people to create our heroes for us? I mean, it's, that's like, it's counter. I mean, said, we can't expect them to create our heroes or our, our champions for us. We've got to do it. And it seems to me the same kind of thing in, 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 in the music, you know, that, you know, you can't wait for stuff to happen. Like somebody's going to create, you know, like LeBron said, well, you know, I'm going to create my own school. Right. You know, uh, musicians could say, well, I'm going to create my own thing. Is that... Is that um, too far afield, or, um, uh, or just, what do you think about that? <laughs> I mean, I try to never think of it as, as them and us, or, you know, it's, it's all us. Right. Um, you know, and there, there are a lot of different forces we have to fight against, um, but we have to make sure that we put in the appropriate perspective. Um, one of my mentors, Wynton Marsalis, he always told me, he said, you got to remember, racism has never been black versus white. It's always been black and white versus white. Mm-hmm. In this country, so we have to make sure that we're not we're not trying to build things that that separate us, but different things that bring us together. But I agree, you know, if you if you um, if you sit around and wait for someone else to do something, right. it might not get done. Right. So right. You, in, in you know, in, in anything, you know, right. that could be starting your school, it right. could be a program, it could be whatever. So um, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why a lot of us do the things that we're doing. We're not sitting around twiddling our thumbs waiting for it to happen. It's like, well, let's get it done. And then maybe if we do enough of those things, some other people be on the sidelines and think, let's let's right. let's jump on the train here and, and get with this. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Well, you, you've, we're talking about it now, but you know you've done a lot of work uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. in the classical music field, and I would imagine you know when, just thinking of classical music, there is a disconnect even from from a, you know just a, a layman as mm-hmm. far as music goes like me, and you think of classical music you don't necessarily think of black people for some reason, even though mm-hmm. it's probably the, the, the baseline. You know, it's like it's, the, it's, the, it's what a lot of other music comes from, right. classical music. 
So what are the special, the, you know, the special challenges in terms of diversifying that uh, genre? I think th there's tons of them, but to speak to the, the first part of what you're saying, that there's this, this disconnect between, between society or you know, the, the average person and what's happening in classical music or their knowledge of it or awareness of it, I think that speaks to, it speaks to a failure in our education system. You know, I, I've said before, one of the things that, that I learned about my musical history as far as African-American musical history at the schools that I went to is that I don't have an African, there is no African-American musical history. Mm. But that's not because there actually isn't one. It's because we're not taught that. I mean, mm. you could say the same thing about American history. Just think about the way that black history is taught in most American schools. We're not taught of all the things, the treasures that we have. And so we get disconnected. I mean, we think about someone like Jesse Norman, who just passed away, who had this in incredible impact. We think about great African-American composers like, like William Grant Still, you know. George Walker. Uh, George Walker. Yeah, exactly. A lot of these people are, are folks that, that we don't know because we, the systems that we grew up in did not prioritize making sure that we knew. Uh, so that's one of the things that we have, we have to address moving forward. And that's in the program, one of the programs that, that I'm running at Juilliard, the pre-college, this is the first, I believe, the first year I can go back and double check my history, but that every orchestral program that we're playing this year has composers of color, female composers on the programs. Mm. Um, and when I look back across the, the archives of things that we've done in the past, a lot of these composers, because this year we did, we're doing a Samuel Carver's Taylor, we're mm. doing George yeah. Walker, we're doing Will and Grant Still, mm -hmm. uh, we have Renee Orth and, you know, Anna Klein. Mm none of these composers really have ever been played in pre-college before. Right. And so our kids are getting exposed to these things. So the old rap, the, yeah, the right. standard repertoire. Yeah, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I love Beethoven and Brahms and Schubert, Schumann, Mahler. I grew up listening to that. I, I practice it all the time. You know, it's, I had to be competent in that in order to get the positions that I have. But I look back, I look at these kids and I'm thinking, what are the things that, that I wish people were telling me when I was 14, 15 years old? How would I be different now? Maybe... Instead of being 37 years old and being at the position I'm at now, uh, you know, mentally, maybe I would have been there 15, 20 years ago. Right. So right. we're working on it. Tell me, how, uh, I mean, what about the, how the trombone? I mean, why, you just started off your thing talking about football in Texas. Yeah. So first thing, how does a, and you're about what, 6'1", 6'2"? 6'2", yeah. Okay, so how does a 6'2 black man, first <laughs> of all, avoid getting thrown into the, into the, Football, basketball, conveyor belt. I mean, did well, I you, did play did basketball. Okay, <laughs> I, I knew there was something. That <laughs> by, by golly, no. But but um, you know, just take us through that. Take us through. You know, you were in. You know, at, at what point? At one point, I'm sure you were playing both, right? Absolutely. You, you were playing music, mm -hmm. and then you were just take yeah, us through that. And then when yeah. when you reached that fork in the road, you took it. <laughs> right. So you know, uh, in Texas, most kids start the band program in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. In fifth grade, the the junior high schools come around to the elementary schools and start recruiting. They tell you, you know, you can choose an elective. You can be in the band. You can be in the orchestra. You yep. can play in choir. You can do whatever, you know. And my dad had played trombone when he was a kid. I think he had played through his freshman or sophomore year in high school. He said, yeah, the trombone's a cool instrument. You should, you should take, give it a look. And we had, since the time I was a little kid, we went to high school football games every, every Friday, Saturday night. You know, we had some of the best teams in the country. It was just fun for us. It was a you know, evening activity. So we'd go out. We'd always sit next to the band in the stands. Mm. You know, the trombone's a very visual instrument. You could, you could see it happen. You look over think, oh, that's cool. And so um, that's how I ended up playing the trombone. You know, the, the band directors came around, gave me a try at a few different instruments. 
I liked the trombone. I took to it really well. My parents never had to tell me to practice. Mm-hmm. I just enjoyed it. My mom would come in and have to come and grab me from school in junior high school, wondering, where is this kid? Why hasn't he walked home yet? It's because I was in the band hall just playing through stuff, just having mm-hmm. fun, you know? So I didn't come from from the tradition of your parents telling you, you got to practice three hours a day, and it's really important. You said, you know, it's a nice extracurricular activity. And they probably thought to themselves, maybe this kid gets good at it, he'll get a scholarship to college and save us some money or something like that. You know what I mean? I'm sure. That, you, oh, you know. did that. You did that and then some. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's where it started, you know? And, um, yeah, I ended up going to Indiana University for a couple of years. Great yeah, Bloomington. Yeah. Uh, leaned into sports. Bobby Knight got fired my first week of school. Uh, that was that <laughs> was two thousand. You were, you were, you were, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great Miles Brand did it. That's that's you right, were, Miles Brand. That he, you weren't the kid that he grabbed. <laughs> no, I was not the kid that he grabbed. Now, I don't know the kid he grabbed, but but I but I was I was there. And then I, of course, Mike Davis being the coach. And right, uh, my right. second year, we went to the national championship, lost to Maryland, right. two thousand two. I, I was there. Yeah, we had that crazy run. We beat Duke. That's right. Um, yeah, it was it was and, awesome. And the famous Mike Davis face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they almost lost that game yeah. to Duke. But, yeah. you, but, you, but, but tell me before we – but you were playing basketball. How far did you go in basketball? I played basketball through my junior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And um, – my my dad my dad played basketball. My uncle coached college ball. My uncle was a coach at uh, Wichita State University. Oh wow! Um, yeah, Wichita State Shockers. So yeah. when when I was uh, in junior high, I remember going to Wichita State basketball camp, and then after that, I went to uh, UCLA basketball camp. Back in the day, that was when they had uh, Steve Lavin and Baron Davis oh, and yeah. Carlos Boozer and all yeah. those dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Earl Watson was about to join the team, mm-hmm. or just yeah. At any rate, so I played basketball, and I was in the band and orchestra through most of high school. And then when my senior year came around, it became very clear that I was going to need to make some choices. I mean, I I could have done both, but I think doing continuing to play sports, if I wanted to pursue music really seriously, it was going to detract from my ability to give it everything that I needed to give it. So I remember walking into the, the coach's office. I can still remember like it was yesterday. Coach Arnold, I walked in his office and told him I had to quit. He looked at me like I was crazy. He was mm-hmm. like, you know, we got a good team. You know, this is varsity ball. You know, we're in the biggest division in, in Texas. It was 5A at the time. Mm-hmm. You're playing some big games. You quit. I said, yeah, man, I got, I got to quit. This is, this is my thing. I know, mm-hmm. I know this is my thing, and I got to take it seriously. I'm either going to be all in or I'm not, and that, that was that. So took that fork in the road. Oh, wow. speaking, of, speaking of that, though, um, you know, on your website, you have, a, you know, tips on playing. Yeah. And what struck me is how similar it is to the, to athletics yeah. in some cases where, you you know, play easy, never mm. play tentatively, uh, relax, relax, relax. Yeah. You know, how, how similar are the disciplines as far as you're concerned? You know, there's a – I mean, obviously they're very different, but I think there's a lot of elements that cross over. So uh, I think one of the, the biggest things that's helped me in music is the idea that sports – Sports is about pressure or pressure points, you know. Mm-hmm. And I can remember from the time being a little kid, at the time when I was a little kid, I was the best kid on the team. You know, I still have like little videos, you know, from, from when I was like 1988, when I was six years old. And you start learning from the time you're six, seven years old what it means when there's like two seconds on the clock and you guys stand at the free throw line and make your shots and your whole team's dependent on you. You know, there's, there's a lot of parallels in music mm-hmm. to that when your part's about to come up and it's time to deliver. And then there's a lot of things that are also basic to just sheer discipline. You know, like there are a lot of basics mm-hmm. in music, especially as a brass player. Every day you got to play right. your long tones, your lip That's slurs, right. your scales, fundamental things. Articulation, yeah. all that. Mm-hmm. All, all the basics, mm-hmm. you know. And I think about that 
even when I still shoot a little ball every once in a while, like I was at Equinox the other day, okay. and I was thinking to myself, you know, I, haven't, I hadn't touched the ball in a little while. But the first thing is I, I walked down there, I started doing some mic and drills. You know, let's just hit, let's just hit 10 of these layups on the right, 10 of them on the left, and we're going to step back to the first, the first mark, then we're going to pull it back, hit a couple free throws, whatever. And don't just come out and start jacking threes, you know, because that's just not, <laughs> that's not the way this thing works. So which, the, which Equinox do you go to that has a hoop? The, the one at 67 in Columbus. Yeah, oh, the, that, the sports oh, club, oh, the, right up here. the one that used to be Reebok. Oh, yeah, yeah okay, all right. But, um, you know, the idea of the idea that deliberate practice and having a purpose to what you're going to do is what yields the results. You know, if you're going to be a, a kid who wants to play ball, you can't just go out and just, just start shooting random shots with two hands. you got to focus on, on what form looks like. And if you want to be a trombone player or a musician of any, of any uh, you know, high caliber, there's, there's a way to do that. I thought... Um, I don't know if you saw this this Nick Saban thing. The other, I, don't, I don't even know how old it was, but he was he had this comment. I think it was in a press conference, and he was talking about choices. And he said the interesting thing is there are a lot of kids that assume that they have all these choices, that there's a lot of different ways to get to the finish line. He's like, but the fact of the matter is, if you want to be really really good, there's not a lot of choices because it just takes what it takes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, that's so beautiful. That's that's exactly what it is. You want to be a musician? It's like, look, this is the number of hours you got to put in. This is how you need to do it. There's a little bit of flexibility on the back end, but you're not going to be great not practicing your scales and your long tones and mm-hmm. listening to recordings and all that stuff. You're not going to be a basketball player or a professional athlete if you're not hitting the gym, right. you know? Right. <laughs> you know, I, one, other, one other side on that, but I used to, when I was in uh, college, during the summers when I had free time, I would go back to Dallas where, where my parents moved afterwards, and we would play uh, – I played basketball in the league with my dad. And Jake Reed, you know, yeah. he used to be wide receiver of for the course, Minnesota Vikings. Right, exactly. He went to the same church as my parents. Mm-hmm. Possession and guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was amazing. Yes, you know? indeed. Um, but I remember him saying that his son wanted to wanted to play football and get serious about it at the time. But he said his dad would – his son would wake him up and say, hey, dad, let's go, let's go play some football. You want to come, you know, throw some passes with me? And he said at one point in time, once his son got to be about in high school, he said, look, at this point, this isn't about fun and games anymore. If you want to play, we're going to play, you know. So mm-hmm. if you want to go in the backyard and just throw the ball around, go call your friends. Mm-hmm. But if you want to play football for real, then we're going to get up at 530 in the morning, we're going to run hills and bleachers, and we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. If we're not going to do that, then go do it with somebody else. That's cool. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's mm-hmm. like, right. and yeah. That, and that, you know, I'm always uh, intrigued by the second generation of athletes. You know, first generation, really hungry, mm-hmm. you know, though. Second generation, kind of maybe not so hungry, you know. It's hard to be. You know, I mean, it's not, although, it, 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 you know, but it, it's, it's interesting, though, that the reason why the second generation of guys, they usually get athletes, probably musicians too, but athletes, it, to me, it destroys the myth that you've got to be this hungry guy, you know, waking up hungry and, right. you know, the wind you're going to see. You know, in other words. Or literally hungry. It, it, yeah. destroys, right. it doesn't mean you have to be literally hungry yeah, for food. You just food. have to be hungry for <laughs> something. I mean, I'm looking at, we can name all the second generation guys mm-hmm. who become great athletes. And there's something else, like Grant Hill. And there's, mm-hmm. that, there's something else. You're driven by something else beside poverty or something like that. You still have this desire to practice. Right. But maybe you just know what it what it takes to, uh, to make. Let me ask you a question. So you went to Indiana University, but you said you only stayed for two years? Right, I transferred, to, I transferred to the Curtis Institute of Music, which is a conservatory in Philadelphia. Okay. And I went there for three years. And what's special about Curtis is that scholarship. It's free. 
you know, you get accepted. Every you student, every student is mm-hmm. tuition free that's, at Curtis. Uh, yeah, that's what's deep about it. Right. Now, I, mean, I had a very because I'm into this whole thing that one of the flaws of any collegiate athletics and reason why it's dumbed down is because big time college sports has not done what music has done, what art has done, what dance has done. In other words, you've got you know you've got schools of music. Right. Schools of dance, schools of art. Some of the greatest school are on on in, in sports. You don't. They haven't taken the time to say, how do we create this school of whatever this is. In other words, we at Indiana University, we come and we might see you Friday playing right. a concert. Yeah. Uh, we might see a, a dance performance by students. Right. But then the next day, Monday, we'll go out and we'll say, oh yeah, well there's a school of music. There's a on Saturday, you'll go out and you'll see 80,000 people at, mm-hmm. the, at the football stadium. Then Monday, you'll kind of say, well, wait, well, where is this? Where, 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 where is the connection here? It doesn't exist. And one day, some kids from Indiana got uh, the, the school got a slap on the wrist because these kids were practicing. Foot basketball players wanted to go practice, but they couldn't because it was not season. And I spoke mm-hmm. to the, the famous dean of the School of Music. I forget who his name was. Gwen Richards? Yes. Wow. Okay. Yes. Because, and he said, you know, we encourage our kids to practice as much as they can. Right. You know, we <laughs> want them to practice. They don't get, and then if a kid transfers, for the most part, they don't have to sit out. You know, if they go to Curtis, they don't have to sit out for a year. They can just right. go and God bless you and all that. Right. It's only, you know, and I thought that's where it comes from. You can go to Curtis. Right. And not have to sit out. Yep. <laughs> Just segue sure. right into it. Man, this is two totally different paradigms though. I mean, I think that's one of the it's one of the issues with collegiate athletics to begin with, the idea that it's that it's part of a nonprofit institution when there's so much profit that surrounds it. And of course there's all these recent things coming out about college athletes being able to be paid for their likeness. Right. Um, you know, music is all these schools are running as nonprofit institutions, for one, you know, and I think that's the biggest thing. And also, that's supposed to be the core of their education. When you leave the Curse Institute of Music, you actually have a bachelor's degree in music, you know, or Indiana University, you know, you, and you can apply for a master's, and these things are accredited uh, by, by accredited, accrediting institutions. Football and basketball are, are not like that. And I, I just think, I mean, I don't know if we're, we're drifting here, but I, I think it's we're definitely. I, I think it's. I think it's interesting that, that some of these institutions try to act as though it's something that is not. When it is what it is. I mean, I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, man. And I'm sure this is a conversation we've all had at some point when you go and watch the basketball game, the football game, or whatever, and you're thinking, everybody's getting paid except for the kids. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And they're getting paid a lot. Right. Well, the coaches. And all, but I mean, <laughs> but, but but to me, it seems as if you've got a lot of particularly young black men who are the backbone of these programs, whether it's Duke, mm-hmm. Kansas, whatever. Right. And there are a lot of guys uh, who probably would be, you know, sports goes in, sports medicine, right. sports law, sports history. I mean, it, it reaches right. everything. So even if you don't play, you could, there's so there many ways you can, you can go. But they don't do that. Right. They basically, you know, particularly at that highest level, so listen, you know, with Zion, whatever. Zion you Williamson. Just, yeah, you're just playing and out, next, out. There's no idea. I mean, you have sports management, stuff like that. But it just seems that particularly when you look at the power structure of, of sports with the Lakers, you, black folks still are not really in that power structure. Right. They're basically kind of playing. Now, I don't know 
you know, you're a, you're a junior mm-hmm. teacher. I, mean, I don't know if if, if the, the ramp is higher. In other words, if they're more proportionally, you know, African-Americans and, you know, Alicia's and Dan's, I don't know if they're more, or if we run into some of the same problems. We run into all the same problems. I mean, it's it's a systemic thing. I think Juilliard is making a lot of strides in the in the appropriate direction to make to make this more inclusive and more balanced. So someone like Alicia Graf Mack, as director of dance, she she has agency and authority to, to make decisions, to to help shift the program and turn a different direction. I have the same I have the same agency and authority in the position that I'm in, which is fantastic. Right. Uh, so. That's to me. It's I wouldn't say it's the only place that's ever done it, but it is, it is more unique than you would you might expect. Classical music has a lot of issues with that. I mean, the statistics for orchestras are that two point five percent of the musicians in orchestras are are Latino. One point eight percent of musicians in American orchestras are African American, and we know how that relates to the percentages that we have as far as the demographics of the country as a whole. And then if you look into conductors. Uh, upper management, those those statistics are, are pretty similar, or perhaps perhaps even worse. Yeah. So, I mean, I I can't remember the last time that I walked into a, a major orchestra and and talked to their upper management and saw a black person. That's that's not a regular thing. It it needs to be. And so, I think a lot of the issues that you see in in classical music are the same ones you can see in in a lot of sports. You know, I think I think the perhaps the critical difference is is that when you go to something like a, like an NFL game or NBA game or something like that, you see so uh, such a higher percentage yeah. of African Americans on the on the on the field or on the court. If you go to see a orchestra concert, you're not going to see as many African Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a slightly slightly different yeah, thing. And, and how, how many are there? Or in patrons the or patrons, you know? Right. Of, of it, you know? How many are how many players are in the um, in the Met? In the Met, yeah. The Metropolitan Opera, we have. Three full-time African American players. So you trombonist and one other trombonist and uh, yeah, trombone black man. Oh, you sit next and, to Weston and and a trumpet player. Actually, we all sit next to each other. Three of us in a row. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we met through Billy Ray. Billy Ray Hunter. Yeah. Shout out to yeah. Billy Ray Hunter, a great trumpeter. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know what? Go ahead. Well, okay, but what about the you know the amount of black people playing uh, the field to choose from? Uh, in terms of, you know, you gave the statistics mm-hmm. in terms of how many blacks and Latinos are in orchestras. But, but you know, how how many of us are really playing instruments to be, to, to be put in that position? And I'm just curious. I have no idea. In other words, because you yeah. have lots of young black kids playing football. Right. Lots of black kids playing. Ba- that pool yeah. is humongous. And, even, and it goes beyond sports because, you know, I'm an attorney and you look at, uh, you know, corporate law and partners, partners right. at law firms, it's the same statistics. Yeah, I mean, there... There are a lot of black and brown kids around America playing instruments. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I mean, at at the rate that we would we would like, it could be better. That's for sure. But uh, to to become serious about classical music, there are a lot of barriers to entry. So that's one of the differences between between playing the trombone for a living or trying to pursue that or trying to pursue violin versus pursuing basketball. You know, if ten kids can share one ball, you know, and go out and play a game. But they can't all share one violin, and violins are expensive, mm-hmm. and you have to get you have to pay for private lessons so that someone can teach you how to do that. And then you have to have enough other kids who also play so that you can participate in chamber music or a large ensemble, and that needs to be a structured thing that's usually through a school or a program. And so there are all these 
these other factors that, that make it much more difficult for people from less privileged backgrounds to, to enter, enter this field. So I think one of the things we've got to work on is trying to break down a lot of those barriers to access, make sure that we reach people when they're, when they're, when they're young and give them the training that they need to get, to get across the finish line. And then on the other side of that, one of the things I've been talking about with, with orchestras, me and my colleagues, is that there are also a fair number of African-American and Latin, uh, Latino musicians who, despite all of those particular hurdles, have still managed to overcome those things. Mm-hmm. You know, they still play great, and then they walk into an environment that's not prepared or are open to accepting them. So we can't, we can't create something where we think, all we got to do is make sure that every young black kid has, has an instrument and gets some lessons, and then if we just do that, it's all going to solve itself because the institutions are also responsible for, for a lot of these outcomes. And that's going to what you were saying earlier about um, telling the kids the expectation, you know, mm-hmm. like, and telling their parents as well. Um, what, what are the, uh, how are you translating that reality to our children of what they have to go through? Because it's good for them to see the punch coming instead of not seeing it at all. I think part of it is, is there's the mentorship aspect. Mm-hmm. That, that's a big thing. We have a lot of the mentorship that happens now in, our, in the African-American community, in particular in classical music, happens in a very grassroots way. Uh, but we've been working on creating initiatives that can help that happen in a, more, um, in a more planned and systemic way. So there are a lot of young African-American students that I've met, and I've made an effort to take them under my wing and say, hey, look, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to be practicing. If you need something, give me a call. You need a recommendation. I'm going to call your teacher. But oftentimes, those things have happened in a way that was that was happenstance. They happened to meet me at a master class. You know, how can we make that something that's a structural thing where it's like, you know that these are the people who are out here who, who have your back and are looking out for you and they're going to take care of you. That's, so we're having that conversation with our students and we're trying to create systems that are helping them and we're simultaneously having conversations with the bigger institutions, uh, both the orchestras and the colleges and the foundations that provide support to those, mm-hmm. to those organizations and saying, all right, look, we're going to work on getting you a generation of kids who are capable and ready to play. But on the other side of that, you need to be making sure that, that your staff, your administration, your, your musicians are getting the training and the understanding that they need to have about, about systemic racism and implicit bias and all these other things and be setting up systems that allow these people to be successful so that when they actually do break down that barrier, they're not going to get chewed up the moment they walk in the door and hate it and want to leave. Right. So, you right. know, it's, it's a bi-directional thing. Right, right. Um, you know, again, I'm just basically repeating what you said. This is, this is, who was I talking to? It may have been uh, somebody talking about going to Harvard Law School or going to Harvard, a young a black guy, mm-hmm. and sort of being intimidated, where there are a lot of kids who's first, second generation, they're used to it. And I'm thinking, you know, we talked about the NBA or big-time college basketball. A lot of black kids are very comfortable. In other words, this is our environment. Mm-hmm. You go into a football environment or a basketball environment, and it's like my environment. I'm really, Absolutely. I'm expected to do well here. I'm expected. Whereas right. the white kids, a lot of times, who are kind of intimidated, like, geez, <laughs> sure. I'm a point guard here, or I'm yeah. a defensive back, forget it. Right. You know, it's flipped. But again, you know, if we could create a thing where more kids walk into the you know, the opera or symphony or something or, or go into Julie and there, there's a, a critical mass mm-hmm. where you're so, yeah, I kind of... I belong here. I kind of belong here. I mean, I do it in the press box. You go in yeah. press boxes now, 
you know, you look when when the uh, Astros. We'll get to that later. Yeah. When the Astros <laughs> were playing, well, you know, you go into the press box, baseball press box. I may have been like one or two black reporters. You know. Yeah. And it's not a thing where it's just this natural kind of thing. Now, I don't know how how you dealt with it because you know you're you're in an area that's you're, you're in rarefied air, and I don't know how you've been able to deal with it. I guess you just kind of make it invisible. How, how, how did you do it? Yeah, how, yeah. I mean, one, partially because of sports, you have a competitive spirit, you know, and you think, I'm going I'm to find a way to deal with it. But there's also that, that thing where, you know, there's, we're all human, and after a while, our, our armor can break down at times, and it can be difficult to deal with that. There's a, there's a whole bunch of musicians, classical musicians who are African-American who have had the experience of being the only one. And sometimes those situations can be difficult. And I remember, I, I won't name the particular situation, but there, there was a situation not many years ago where I knew I was going to be in some high-pressure moments as the only one in the room. And I think it must have been divine intervention or something. But I happened to be reading this book called The Work by Wes Moore. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah you know, leading up to that. And he, he had this beautiful paragraph in one of the earlier chapters in the book where he was talking about imposter syndrome. Mm. And basically, paraphrasing here, but what he said is, if you look around the room and you realize that you're the only one, oftentimes it can be the case that you think, maybe I don't belong, I'm not qualified, I'm not good enough to be here. It's like, But the other way to look at that is maybe if you're the only one, it's because you specifically deserve to be there. And a lot of people for a long time have worked really hard so that at least one person could be in that room. And it turns out that that one person is you. Mm -hmm. And if you are that one person, that might not mean simply that you are qualified or are comped enough to be in that room. It might mean you're actually by far the most competent and qualified person right. in that room. Otherwise, right. you would have never right. <laughs> been offered the opportunity to even step through the door. Mm. Um, and when I, when I read that, that was a very, very empowering moment for me because, you know, we have all these cliches about we stand on the shoulders of giants. That's, that's true, you know. Um, there are a lot of people who have, who have worked and sacrificed and lost their lives for generations before so that you could have you know, one black member of the New York Philharmonic, for example, my friend Anthony McGill. Mm. Uh, or so there could be an African-American who's the dean of the preparatory division at Juilliard, the director of dance. Someone, there are generations who have worked to make that happen. So when you get there, you can't approach that as, I don't belong here. Granted, there may be some other people who think you don't belong there, right. but you know that you do, mm. you know. Right. That, that, the difference is they may not want you there versus belonging <laughs> It's not, right. Yeah, I belong sure. here. You may not want me here. You are correct. But the, the thing, the thing too, is is with sport, with sports, and I kind of, you kind of think that it would be somewhat the same in music, is you look at it, and it, neither one is probably the case. But you, you think of it as supposed to be a meritocracy, mm -hmm. where you know, especially if you're playing an instrument, something you can hear, and, and it's supposed to be undeniable, just mm -hmm. like a player on the field. You see them do things. Right. The, the talent is undeniable. So, I mean, that had, does that bother you? you know, if you if you you know what you hear, you know if you who's good and who's not, and you're not seeing the the right people move up the ladder, that has to be, you know, discouraging. It can be. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why 
one one thing we've worked on in classical music, the Metropolitan Opera has been great about this for a long time. We have a blind audition process. So everyone plays every round behind a screen and they're voted on without the, the judges knowing the identity of the um, of the applicants. And that person is is offered the position before before their identity is known. Mm. They said, all right, we're going to hire number four. That person is the winner of our audition. We'll, we'll see you in a few months when the season starts. And that's how I got my job here, you know? And, <laughs> and, that's, and that's how Billy Hunter, you know, got his job here. And, um, and I think we show up really ready to go for those because you think, all right, now I know the, level, the, the playing field's about to be level. So let's let's go. You know, if you got a shot, this this is it. Now, one of the things we've worked on is trying to get more and more orchestras to adopt a similar practice because that has not been the case uh, across the field. There there are a lot of orchestras that use screens, but they don't all use them all the way to the end. So they might say, "We'll have a screen for the preliminary or the semifinal round, and for the finals, we're going to take the screen down so we can see who it is. We can learn a little bit more about you. learn a little bit more <laughs> in, in air quotes black. about about the about the candidates, <laughs> things like that. Which I think is just it's just it's just bias delayed. Right? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not a big fan of it. So, uh, me and my friend Shay Scruggs uh, have written a couple of articles about this, and we've encouraged orchestras to try to adopt the policy of being blind start to finish. And we actually got ICSOM, which is the International Conference of Symphony and Opera Musicians, which is, I wouldn't say a governing body, but it's a, it's a, a body of where there are different represent, representatives from orchestras all over the country come together and discuss what best practices are. Last year, they adopted a resolution that said that blind auditions are now considered best practice mm-hmm. for orchestras. And there are 14 American orchestras now that do blind auditions start to finish. That was not the case 15 years ago. So I like to think that kind of you know, pounding the pavement and screaming about this for years and years and years has finally resulted in a little bit of progress. Which 14 orchestras? Are the major ones or yes. more the mid, mid-major, mid mid-level ones? It, it depends on, on how you qualify it. I mean, okay. and I don't remember them all at the top of my head, but I can tell you uh, the Met does this, mm. Cincinnati Symphony does this, mm. Kansas City Symphony does this, and, uh, and several others. So okay. it's, it's not like... Because I was wondering if it's Philly, Boston, Dallas, L.A., you know, doing that, you know, it's, National I w- Symphony. I would say it's a lot of orchestras that, that, you, that you will have heard of. It's not, you Good. know, it's not, it's not small, small regional right. orchestras. Well, here's mm-hmm. the other thing is that, is that, that ICSOM is an organization that's... that's the larger orchestras in America. There's another organization called Regional Orchestras Players Association, which okay. is a much smaller or smaller budget groups. Mm-hmm. So 14 of the larger orchestras Good. or higher budget orchestras in America have adopted this policy. Mm-hmm. Well, so let, let me, before we, uh, man, we could do this for another two hours, but, <laughs> but we're not. Yeah, yeah. fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, um, but two things. Uh, you talk about forks and roll, and we, we have three or four minutes, but you're going to have to talk some, some sports with us. Sure. But, Jazz and you know I was like, you were talking about forks in the road. One fork in the road was the music versus sports. Mm-hmm. But what about jazz? Uh, you know, choosing "quote unquote" classic. A lot of musicians with jazz classic too. But you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I understand Harden, what you're saying. How did that like fork Western in the road European versus American West, jazz? Yeah, 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 yeah. How did that, how did that how did you take that fork? That was actually never a fork for me to navigate. I mean, the the music education that I got in Texas was a classical education, and so that's the music I fell in love with. Mm. You know. And actually, I was speaking about Wynton Marsalis earlier. I knew Wynton Marsalis is playing as a classical musician before I knew it yep. as as a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. I remember going to a family member's house, and my parents were downstairs talking about you know the 
fastest route to work or whatever, I went upstairs and I was flipping through some CDs. I saw this Winston Marsalis Carnival CD Ooh. where he was mm. playing, you know, Carnival he's, of Venice. He's been win- oh, yeah, yeah, playing all this yep. crazy stuff. I'm a modern, and I was yeah. like, man, who's who's this black dude that can play all this crazy stuff on a brass instrument? That's cool. Mm-hmm. I got to go yeah. try that out on the trombone, mm-hmm. see if I can make it happen. Mm-hmm. So, so that was that was the the direction that I came from. Granted, I love jazz. I mean, that's why we met at a Christian McBride concert. Uh, right. But but uh, it's never been something that I've actively pursued as, as an art form. Huh. Okay. I mean, I love it. And I, don't get me wrong, I wish I could. But that's, Nabate, I tell you, that's a lot of time and dedication. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. And wanted to ask you, composition, do you get into that at all? I don't. I've, I've done some some small arranging and transcriptions and things like that. But I haven't I haven't done much composition of, of my own. Now, in a couple of minutes we have left, we got yeah. the ball. Sure. Uh, Houston Rockets, is it working out with, 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 uh, with, um, <laughs> with, 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 West, with Westbrook and Harden? With Westbrook and Harden. Or, or I, I just want to, you're, you're from right. Houston. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm sure you pay attention. What do you, what do you think of James Harden? <laughs> oh, man. You know, everything that I understand about James Harden is that he's a great person, a great guy. Obviously, the dude can ball, clearly. I don't know if the style of basketball the Rockets play is conducive to winning championships. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, James Harden and Russell Westbrook make, make a great team. Is it going to work out? I mean, it depends on what your definition of working out is. Is it going to work out they're going to win a championship? No, it's not. <laughs> you know I mean? wow. Are they going to be a winning team? Probably, right. yeah. I mean, they got, they got two stars in their team who are great. Are they going to beat the Clippers or the Lakers? No. Now, is Coach D'Antoni a dead man walking? Because basically, this is his last year of this contract. So if they continue to struggle like this, do they let him go in the middle? What's, See, their, what rec- what's their record now? Do you know? Uh, where, where are they at? About, they're 500. They're about 500. Right. It's yeah. early. I mean, yeah. And they're definitely in the bottom of defensive. You yeah. Know, you know, when so. By the time the season's over, they're going to be a winning team. Okay. They'll make the playoffs. You know, they'll but, get there. But remember, he has no contract past this year. Look, he, he, might, he, might get, he might get cut, you know? But, <laughs> but the thing is... The thing is, I mean, I don't know if they're necessarily going to get someone better. They might cut him because they have overinflated expectations. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if, if Jesus came to coach the Rockets, do you think they would, would win, win the championship this year? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, they're going to beat LeBron defense. and AD? Come on. <laughs> with, Jesus, with Jesus' help, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that, you know what I'm saying? But that's yeah, no, that's what it would take. It, it would take that. But the, but the thing about the Rockets, the last the last couple of years, <laughs> he might give him a couple. He might yeah. be worth a couple wins. Yeah, he might he might he might be able to get him a game seven. The last couple of years, they've actually played decent defense, and they had remember they had the defensive coordinator yeah. uh, Bezdelic yeah. as the assistant who, who coach, fired, yeah. who's gone now, yeah. and yeah. they're giving up 160 points this year. Their best chance is two years ago. Right, that was All right. it. All right, we got uh, our our producer who has as it turns out, you know, as yes. small world, you know, Aaron Matthews's family, which yeah. is like small yeah. world. You know, um, that's another podcast, though. Um, you're a Lakers fan. What do you think? Of, you know, what, are, are, is there is there more hope for you as a Lakers fan than there's hope for Rockets fans with, with, with Houston? For sure. And I'll clarify. I'm a LeBron fan. I, I wouldn't, you know, last year I was, or two years ago, I was, I was a Cleveland fan. And before that, I was a, I was a, a Heat fan. And that's because I think LeBron has owned the heritage of what it means to be, be an African-American athlete. And I respect that. And I like all the other things that he's doing. But, yeah, to the basketball question, I think they got to be the favorites. I mean, this is the first time in recent memory that you could expect that a different player that LeBron plays with is going to get more points and rebounds than he does on a regular basis. Are they gonna that's that's the, all he needs. Are they going to win a championship? Yes. 
Okay. And, you heard it here first. <laughs> and it's crazy. Barring injury, yes. Well, and, well. And, but <laughs> you know what? The only, the only team that I think is, is potentially more solid than them is the Clippers. But the Clippers are injury prone, too. I mean, Kawhi Leonard's had injury issues. Paul George is currently with some, some injury mm-hmm. issues. So all things being equal. But they yes. got more depth. More depth outside of that. Yeah. Outside of uh, the, well, the big got two, some death too. <laughs> but um, Frank Vogel, props to him because the, de- the defense. I mean, their good. defensive intensity is crazy. They look yeah. good. Weston, this is we, we have to have you back, Weston. This is Weston Spot, the great Weston Spot. <laughs> finally, after two years, we finally, after three years, we finally got you back here. You got to come back because we got to talk about load management. <laughs> yeah, uh, is, is there load management in in your? Or is this, you know, but you have to yeah. answer now. But yeah. low, would you like to have load management? <laughs> well, I don't think I'm going to play this evening. Yeah, I would like that. <laughs> so we'll be back, and uh, when we come back, we, Aaron, our, our great producer, Aaron Matheson, does a segment called Trip and Check. She's got a couple news items, and she asks each of us, is this person tripping or, <laughs> or was it trip and That's check? It. Or do we need to check them? Are they tripping or not chicken? So I'm sure she's got a couple items that will get us all fired. We'll be right back. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 book titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. For you, the listeners of the Bill Roden on Sports podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. We highly recommend that you check out the classic $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete by the one and only William C. Roden, an absolute must-read. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on Sports. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on Sports for your free audiobook. All right, so we're back. Uh, our, Our erstwhile producer... Aaron Matthews has joined us for her segment, uh, Trip and Check, which, depending on this performance, we'll either expand it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> pressure. Uh, yeah. So much pressure. So what, what, you got, what you got for us today, Aaron? Well, okay, actually, I, I do have a question for you guys. Did you guys uh, see when President Obama said that cancel, cancel culture is overrated? And he basically told millennials to kind of get over themselves and that there's no such thing as purity and you're going to have to compromise. What was this? Cancel? Cancel culture. You know, like when, um, who's the most recent person? R. Kelly. Canceled. Canceled. (laughs) Like, we're not going to his concerts. We're not buying his music. We were not playing him at the party. Nothing. So he said that's over? He says it's overrated and that millennials need to get over themselves. And What does he mean by that? Well, he's just saying that people are, you're going to have to compromise. There's no such thing as like a pure, like, you can't just be totally. Right. It's been, it's like part the recent culture has been like, you know, it could be R. Kelly or it could be, you know, anybody who gets caught up in the Me Too movement. We're canceling them. People have been saying, using that word, he's canceled. Oh, I see. So Obama's saying that, that's, that's ridiculous. Or it's, you know, kind of ridiculous. Uh, and the question is? Is he tripping or not? Because I've heard some people say, you know, some people were, I, I saw people retweeting him and being like, yeah, that's so true. And I heard other people say, you're simplifying cancel culture and things are evolving, sir. Huh. What do you think, Weston? What I heard when Obama said that, I think what he clarified was that people who do great things also have flaws. And he was also criticizing people who simply stand outside and throw stones. And he was saying we can't just be 
the wokest person on Instagram or Facebook and say, look at this terrible thing that person did. I'm going to throw some stones over there and then sit back on the couch, actually not do anything myself and call myself an activist. It's like you're a faux activist as opposed to sitting around and criticizing other people. Get up and do something yourself, you know. Uh, So to me, that's more of of what he was trying to put across. I mean, saying, look, nobody's perfect. Even the people we think are perfect have some flaws, you know. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a huge Obama fan, you know. I, I I love the guy, you know. He's he's a a hero of mine, and I'm I'm sure that he's imperfect in some ways, but but we just but who is out? <laughs> yeah, I mean he's done a great job of covering. If there's anything there, yeah. he's the man. Right. Well, like you said, like he's nobody's perfect. Uh, I mean, you know, for me, you know, you call it cancel. I mean, that's just the latest term. Right. But what I do is that I will not buy your records. Right. If you do something as egregious, I don't care whether it's 1920 or 1930, whatever you call it, whatever it was called then, if I find out that this white cat is a racist, you know, I'm going to cancel him. Whatever whatever I call him, I'm I'm not going to support you. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess he was saying it's overrated or get over yourself. I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not going to say our president, who I am a tremendous admirer, was tripping. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but, Headline, Bill yeah, Roden says. Because <laughs> Obama was tripping. <laughs> no, I was just saying that I think we have to be critical. Yeah. And if right. there are people who, with R. Kelly, I cannot support that. Right. I, and, you know, with, or whether it's, um, whether it's the owner of the Patriots mm-hmm. who's caught in the thing and it kind of feeds into slave, uh, sex slave trafficking. Right. I'm not down with that either. Right. So I don't know. You know, I don't know what you call that. I do call it being discerning. I'm finding more and more that people, people are you. You have to hold space for these kind of multiple dimensions of people. Like, you know, Jay Z is an amazing lyricist, and also he disappointed a lot of people when he partnered with the NFL. Right. But can you still do you cancel him or do you embrace him? I know that's not any that's not on the same level as um, R. Kelly and the allegations against him. Um, but I, I think for the most part, there are all these people who you have to hold space for them, and then there are some people. It's like. I'm done. I think I think what Obama is saying is we can't categorize people as all bad or all good yeah. and that there's no space in between. So um, Brian Stevenson wrote this great book. I don't know why I'm forgetting oh, the name of the Just top Mercy? Of yes, Just yeah. Mercy. Right. Great book. It's going to turn into a movie. Mm. Yeah, it's going to I think Jamie Foxx is in it. It's going to be probably amazing. But mm. one of the things that stood out to me is, you know, he was defending people who were on, on death row some of whom he found out were innocent, some of people who, who committed these crimes. But a standout moment in that book is when he said, nobody, nobody is only the worst thing they've ever done. That's not how people... We can't, we can't define people like that. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not supporting or condoning the bad actions that people have taken, but you can't look at someone who, who was a murderer or whatever, whatever it happens to be, and say... That's the only thing we will ever remember about that person because I think that's the point Obama was making is that people are complex. People do good things. People do bad things. We have to figure out how we're going to reconcile those things amongst ourselves because if we think that, hey, it's just either you do everything right and if you, you slip up in some way, we're going to cancel you, then before it's all over and done with, everybody's canceled. Right. Well, I mean, you, you look at, at, at the Miles documentary. You know, and, and we've all known just that he's had these issues with women, you know. Right. Hating women. I didn't know it till I saw the movie. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So, you know, so the question is, do you burn all your Miles Davis albums? Right. 
or don't listen to him again. You gonna burn all your John Coltrane albums because because he, he he had he did drugs. Well, then you burn a lot of your collections. <laughs> right. I mean, that's what I think. That's what I Parker think. That's Obama's that. point. Like, right. It's, it's there's nothing left. Right. And it's the word cancel. I mean, cancel is that's extreme. Right. To okay. do oh, so, we're I, I gonna cancel I, Jordan and Tiger Woods. You know, can. and even yeah. even even <laughs> I mean even Kanye, even Kanye West, I you know I I actually uh, I mean people you know I had to wrestle with it internally but for a little bit but I do separate the music if you know if if I hear music that makes me bob my head, I'm sorry I mean I you know I'm gonna appreciate it and then I'm gonna pay nothing no attention at all to what he says. Do you allow the best? <laughs> Do you, here's, do you allow the best person on your team, even at the youth level, to get away with stuff because they're the best person on your team? And I've seen that. I've seen that at the, the youth time. level, you know, that that this kid, well, you know, like, you know, because he's the best kid we got and all that. And to me, or do you cancel that kid immediately because he's got to learn a lesson or until that develops into something where, where the stuff he gets to, or she gets away with becomes more egregious, more egregious, more egregious, and then something bad happens. I mean, it's the flip side of cancel culture. But we're not providing any space for any gray area. I mean, right. we're, we're saying there's a difference between saying someone's going to be disciplined or they're going to pay a price for their actions versus they're canceled. You know, if we look at, you know, maybe not the perfect example, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods paid a price for his actions. No, he paid a price. And he Michael paid, Vick he, paid a price. Michael Vick. They, these people paid a price right. for their actions. Right. Um, they, they might not have gotten canceled. There's, 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 a, there's some space in there in between. The great thing about, about well, I know we're far afield, but about <laughs> sports is that, you know, okay, Tiger Woods did what he did, but he had the ability to have stage that amazing performance. Yeah. He could go on the golf course and do something. Mm-hmm. You know, now singing a song, well, that's to me is, it's kind of subjective. But if you are Tiger Woods and you could win Augusta National mm-hmm. with tremendous comeback, or you're, you know, Michael, well, I don't know, I don't know, things like that. That's the difference. But just one thing, you you talk drugs. You know, Charlie Parker did it to himself, mm-hmm. uh, or Billy Holiday did it to herself. R. Kelly did it to somebody. Um, you know, he 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 inflicted something on somebody. So. You know, I guess you have to, and, and, and I also don't know what we're talking about when we say cancel people. Right. What are you talking about, boycotting them? Or what do, when we say cancel, Aaron, since you brought this up, are we talking about just not buying somebody or just not, what are you, taking them off your Facebook feed or something? You know, completely discounting whatever accomplishment they've ever, you know, had, you know, totally ignore them as far as, you know, culturally uh, act like they didn't exist. Yeah, I think like and Kanye is a great example. I think people are like um, David Dennis just had a um, a great story on the Undefeated saying Kanye just came out with this new album. Don't worry about it. Like he's proven himself to be a coon, and we don't need to. He's he that he trolls black people, and there are too many artists who actually love black people to listen to to worry about this guy. And you know, clearly that hasn't hurt. Kanye's pocketbooks like he just was invited to Howard University's homecoming he's got Sunday service people are talking about it so I don't know I don't know that it's hit him like that but I you know I've, I've heard that more than once people are like just let Kanye go right. do you have another one for us I do well it's not a I didn't did you want to say something no <laughs> did, did you have any thoughts on Kanye I'll pass. Uh, I do have thoughts on Kanye, but we we don't have time for that. (laughs) Last thing. Uh, I've got a trip. Do you have another trip in chat? No. No, do you have one? 
I was, I was, it's more of a shout out. Okay. Well, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to shout out the, uh, I feel like we're witnessing a changing of the guard in uh, distance running right now. And hmm. um, uh, earlier this month, earlier this year, Bridget Kosge from Kenya, she's 25. She just broke the world record for the marathon. Oh. Um, she wow. beat, and the woman who had it before, it was six, she, it was the, the previous record was set 16 years ago hmm. by Paula Radcliffe, who's also amazing. Um, and then on Sunday, uh, Jocelyn Co- uh, Jeff Kosge, uh, beat Mary Kaitan, who was the she's won the New York City Marathon four times. They, everybody expected her to get a fifth easily, and uh, Jocelyn beat her by just under a minute. So wow, that's a, that's a big gap. She's twenty five as well, and I just feel like you know, the people that they beat are both Paula and Mary are amazing. No taking that. It's kind of like Serena. It's like they're amazing, but we're seeing a new era of people that I think we're going to see them at the Olympics, and it's going to be good. Well. My last thing, and we kind of touched on it the last segment, trip and check. Um, so the Clippers, uh, the Clippers are playing uh, uh, the um, Milwaukee Bucks tonight. Okay. And um, uh, what's the name is taking load ma- load management night off? Um, Who, Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard again. Load, yes. Load management up. Is he tripping, or does he need to be checked? Neither. Mm. Needs to be checked. There's, there's nuance. In other words. <laughs> Check. I mean, I mean as they check, does he need to be put into, in other words, is this thing with load management, is it getting a little out of hand? I mean, I think that's something you ask yourself at the end of the season. If they end up winning the finals and he's fresh, then everybody's going to say they did the right thing. Right. You know, it's right. one of those revisionist Which history is what things. Toronto said last year because he missed 22 games. Yeah, and they last won. Season. Is anybody talking about his load management from last year? Well, some people. Some people didn't vote for him for MVP. Any well, people in Toronto talking about it right. from last year? Well, no, of no. course. <laughs> right. Take the whole season off. And if the Clippers win. And, and, and really, we talk, about, we talk about doing it to yourself. He's, I mean, you know, you could say that he, the fans may be missing out on him playing. There's always that argument. But as far as, you know, like you said, he what, he's not going to win MVP if he only plays 65 games, which he played last year. Um, so he, he got no he, – he wasn't in, even in the MVP running last year, even though his numbers were good. He was not first-team All-NBA last year just because of the 65 games he played. So he's only hurt, hurting himself as far as those accolades go. Um, I mean, as a fan, it's annoying to me. If you bring your two sons, no, I mean, you get tickets to the – you get tickets, you know, you live in Brooklyn, you get these two free tickets or two tickets to I go guess, to see the uh, Brett. And, I guess. and then I, you come – I don't think he owes me, though. Kawhi Leonard is competing with history. Right. <clears throat> And history is going to remember if he was successful in the playoffs or not, not whether or not he missed this game against the Bucks. Right. <laughs> and and he, he knows that, you know. So he's thinking what matters most is that when June comes around, I'm ready to roll. People forget about this. And not to mention, he's, you know, this was an issue today. Uh, the NBA put out a, put out a, a statement saying that he he's technically does have an injury. Uh, they're saying he's, he's dealing with knee, knee issues. So it's not, you know, he's not just sitting out. Of a of a nationally televised game, he has an injury, and you know, last time we saw him in the finals, he was limping around. Mm-hmm. So here's the finals. thing: here's let's say for sake of argument, and I asked you the last segment, would you as a musician? Now you have a pretty grueling schedule too. Totally, you have a very grueling schedule. There are probably some nights when you wanted to have a load management night too, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true, you know. Right? But <laughs> uh, we don't, you know, we have, want you to continue. Have you have you pulled out of shows? Absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't do it. I don't do it on a regular basis. But I mean, if I don't feel like, if I don't feel like I'm capable of doing my job well, or that I'm not going to be able to do my best, or if doing that is going to compromise me long term, 
But I think if I don't take tonight off and I keep playing and I know I'm on the brink of injuring myself, and if I screw that up, that means there's going to be at some point later I got to take three weeks off to mm-hmm. really recover from this, then it's a smart choice to take the night off. You got to do that. Yeah, I mean, what if what if Kawhi decides, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and play tonight. I'm going to play the next night and the next night, and then he ends up getting injured, and then he has to miss three weeks. Right. Then there I, you go. Your, your, as an athlete, your body is your moneymaker. I think you have to take care of it. Like, I think – I think after KD, everybody's being, I think everybody's evaluating, you know, how long do you take for recovery? But also to your point, I mean, it's not the, it's not exactly the same, but Lalisa DeSisa from Ethiopia was the guy. He was supposed to win New York City. He pulled out at mile seven. He had a hamstring strain. And I think at, at some point you're like, if you're not going to get what you want, why, like, yeah. why do it? Yeah, I, I get that. But now here's the thing as we end this segment, this very long segment. Okay, so we let's say we accept that, but you look at big time college basketball. You think somebody's gonna just as much wear and tear on your body almost is Duke some Duke is Zion or something? Well, yeah. they did hold him out. Say, well, Zion's a bad example, but right. just not, I mean, yeah, well. I mean, he was damn near broke his ankle. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, another athlete, you know, just saying, listen, you know, I I got to take a night off, and you think the coach Bill Self, whatever, going, you know, now that's a different plantation. But you think they're going to say, the word. yeah, they're going to say, yeah, well, sure, so and so, take the night off. I said, no, you know, if he's your star guy, you will. But none of my, I, I wonder. Well, college, and, college football, it's been happening. Guys have been pulling out from uh, the bowl, the bowl games. games. They said, yeah, and, and the people kind of looked askance at them. Yeah. Said, you know, but it makes complete sense. Why are we going to play this unnecessary game, this bowl game that means nothing, and I might get hurt, and once I get hurt, where is everybody? You know, I mean, nobody was there. Everybody loves a winner. When you lose, you lose a loss. I don't know. Well, that's why they have the. That's why guys are doing this at the bowl game and not doing this when they're an average player for an average team in the middle of the season. Because once you realize that making one of these mistakes is going to cost you dollars, right? You operate differently, and I think that's what Kawhi is thinking. He's like, you know, I mean, look at what happened with John Wall. You know, he's been injured in in uh, his who is it Adidas? Is that right? I, I think that he was with. I can't remember. They were like, we want to, we want to pull out of your contract and get it, get it canceled early because you know you haven't been able to be on the court and perform because you've been injured. I mean, Kawhi Leonard and these guys, they they have, but that's, they have a lot of things to own up to. I mean, if he if he plays, I mean, the people who are in Milwaukee that night might be happy, but if he ends up getting injured and he can't play the rest of the season, his his shoe contract might be in jeopardy. His ability to renew his contract next time that's that's too many dollars to risk over something like that. And he's done this correctly. I mean, you, I think you've convinced me. Uh, I'm no longer annoyed. Uh, <laughs> because he's proved, I mean, he did this last year, worked. He won, he won the championship. If anyway, I mean, he's basically the, Jamal, the prototype. Would you, would you put that many dollars on the table at risk? No. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> I don't think anybody would. Exactly. Uh, I can't I, blame him. You know, same thing with fantasy football, though. I mean, I've heard a lot of athletes complain, mm-hmm. you know, that you've got these people who are like these fantasy football teams, and they're like, after the game, they're like, a guy may have gotten hurt. And he's like, man, you're killing me, man. I mean, you know, the, you right. know I had you on my fantasy football team. We're just joking. Tell the, the guys need to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, good segment, uh, Aaron. Lots of food for thought. Always a pleasure to be here. Yes, we'll expand your segment in coming years, <laughs> coming coming months. Weston, thanks again. Absolutely. Uh, this is great. And uh, we actually want to come see you. We actually want to Let's come. do it. Yeah. Let's, I'm where, here. Where, where are you performing any uh, soon or in the near future? I'm performing probably tomorrow night. What is today? Wednesday? Yeah. Yes. Tomorrow. Yeah. There tomorrow night. Metropolitan Opera. I'll be there Saturday night. I usually play uh, four times a week. 
at the Met. So that's a regular performance schedule running, uh, usually from late September until until late May, early June. Are you well? So we're on all the time. Yeah. How do you get yourself up for that? I mean, because a lot of times you play the same, you sing the same. Let's say you'll say play the same performance for X number of weeks, right? No, we change almost every night. Oh, really? Actually. Oh. Yeah, in any given week, there's probably about seven performances at the men. That's usually a four different operas. They rotate. So over the course of a season, we do about 25 different operas and then a handful of concerts at Carnegie Hall. It's it's pretty varied. There's very few nights feel the same. Oh, good. Mm. oh that's, so that's that's. Great. It's got a lot of variety, yeah, and a, a lot of challenges. Do you remember, it's your, awesome. do you remember your debut? Do you remember your Absolutely. first? Absolutely. Yeah. When, 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 when was it? Did you have your whole family there? My parents came. Yeah, my par- parents flew from Texas. It was September of 2005. And it was a it was opening night at the Met. It was a it was kind of a season sampler show. We did a, an act act two of Tosca. Uh, we did an act I think it was act act three of Saint Samson and Delilah, and then an act of Marriage of Figaro. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, when you come back, you know, my brother is an opera singer in Germany. Okay, I, I, think, I remember you telling me this. Yeah, and so maybe one day when he comes here in the summer all the time. Yeah. So we'll have them on the show. Give it, give an impromptu <laughs> performance. Yeah, we can just. Anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Hey, man, thank you. Actually, we make that happen. Well, I don't know. That'd be cool. You, 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 you might be low man. Nah. Low man. <laughs> yeah, I was going to do I'm going to have to take that day off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, man. Absolutely. All right. Cool. To believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.